Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name is Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we recognize that whenever Reformation happens, it is always a messy process. And we're having a great time talking to pastors throughout the CRC to hear what they have to say about our denomination and to hear what they think needs to happen for us to see Reformation. I want to continue saying thanks to all of our faithful listeners out there. Guys, this message is spreading throughout the CRC and it's because of you. You guys keep listening every week and you keep sharing it with other people and our listenership continues to grow. So I want to say thanks and I want to tell you, keep up the good work. Keep thinking about those who would benefit from hearing these conversations and let them know about what we're doing. If you haven't yet, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every Monday. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode where we have a conversation with Aaron DeBoer. Why don't you uh, kick us off and tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, where you're at and uh, a little bit about your family. Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, within the context of life, I, I couldn't I couldn't describe it without also the context of the Christian Reformed Church. Um, hmm. I'm a child of the covenant and have been shown the covenant of grace by my ancestors in this tradition. And so, um, yeah, I was baptized in Craigmore CRC in Colorado Springs in 1977. And, uh, my formative years were spent there. Mom and dad are just wonderful Christian people and serve the Lord by, by serving me, uh, in the church and teaching me the things of God, um, had the privilege really of, the, the CRC experience in the in the 70s and 80s that was um, just just rich the, the the great strengths of our tradition where I was well catechized and um, I'm a Calvinist cadet and uh, I heard the the Heidelberg Catechism um, taught in conjunction with gospel preaching every Sunday night and then from my own father, who was the elder who taught the catechism to the junior high school students. So very formative to have benefited from um, this stream, this stream of Christ church. And uh, later in life, I was, I was called into ministry. So um, I spent a little bit of my teens and twenties with some libertine theology Um let the listener understand I was sinning a lot. <laughs> yeah. But yet the, the Lord was so gracious to me in pursuing me and, and using his church to do that too. And uh, yeah, so I was involved as a full-time ski bomb in my twenties. And I, I was successful at that. I was a delightful life and a business person. And then um, in my thirties, I um, married a, a neat Christian gal, and we had just a delightful um, 
Christian marriage from, from, from my view in the church together and uh, in prayer and giving and so forth. And sadly, um, she fell in love with this world and, and I lost her not to death, but to, to a broken covenant. And so that was a deep grief and blindside, but so formative too, and an opportunity for the local church who fulfilled their, their vow to me. And the local church was uh, just wonderful. We, I've been in Northwest Washington for most of my life. We relocated to Tacoma when I was a teenager. And then as a young adult, I moved to Northwest Washington, Linden area. And it was uh, the saints at second CRC of Linden who bound my wounds and walked with me through deep grief and depression and even the physiological um, effects of that and challenged me to continue to use my gifts. And I had served as uh, a deacon previously and a liturgist and so forth, but, but ultimately was equipped for teaching in that context and made an elder and then um, a generous man in that congregation, uh, a very simple dairyman, offered to send me to Calvin Seminary. And so I began formal theological training, which was just an incredible gift that he gave me. And then in my first semester, I was called to an interim solo pastorate in Whatcom County, Washington, in a, in a small church that was kind of struggling. And that led to uh, four years in the pulpit there as, a, as an interim, but also into uh, Article 23 ordination and served them, continued to study simultaneously at Calvin Seminary and also work bivocationally. I'm a nurseryman farmer. And uh, yeah, that was a wonderfully formative time too, to be kind of thrown into the pulpit um, in a time when spiritually I was just maturing by leaps and bounds and having been through the Lord's Seminary of Suffering. And uh, so then took a, left that pulpit a couple years ago to spend some time with my mom who has dementia. And that was a sweet year to be with her as she still had some faculty and just ministering to her and bringing the means of grace. And then uh, middle of last year during the coronavirus, sensed a call to, to plant a worshiping community in the rural area, the mountains of Northwest Washington, where I live. And so in November, we began Friend of Sinners. And that's been just a joy to be a part of. We now uh, worship twice a week, Thursday nights and Sunday nights due to the uh, facilities that we rent. I'm Again, ordained Article 23 under Second Linden uh, for this work and discipling elders, discipling unbelievers and our Armenian neighbors and so forth, just a, a broad spectrum of people in, in the community. And uh, it's, just, it's just thrilling. So that's probably a, a couple minute articulation of the last 45 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I love, I love watching. Uh, you know, your story sounds a lot like mine in some ways. Of you know, just uh, well, I kind of, I didn't grow up in the church as a young child, but as a middle schooler and a high schooler, I was in the church and 
And uh, yeah, yeah, you could say I, I studied my own licentious, uh, <laughs> licentious theology during my early, my late teens and, and early 20s there until uh, I would say God cracked me over the head with a two by four and, uh, and woke me up and uh, called me in, into the ministry. So, um, but it's interesting to, to think about, you know, you talked about uh, receiving this call and going and helping out a struggling church and entering into the seminary of suffering, right? And kind of being thrown in the deep end, trying to learn, figure your way out. That was, that was me, my experience as well. Uh, I got called to ministry and, uh, and my dad always taught me, if God calls you to something, you obey him. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, I will pursue this, even though I don't know what I'm doing. I just know that God's calling me to this. And so I'm trying to be faithful. And uh, man, I, I was in so far over my head that first year or two of, uh, of uh, youth ministry, but, but I knew I was way in over my head. And so I, that God just grabbed a hold of me and forced my nose to the word and all these teenagers asking me questions I didn't know. And I was like, ah, I'll have to get back to you next week. And I'll go home and study God's word and come back to you with an answer. And then they'd ask me, well, what about this? Ah, I'll have to get back to you next week. And I go <laughs> home and study it. And that was my seminary education, really. Because, I mean, not that I didn't learn anything in seminary. But, but when I entered in and went back to school and all of that, um, I had a real deep grounding just from the work of ministry. Yeah, there's no doubt that if you get the privilege of marinating in a couple of texts a week in order to, to preach or teach them, uh, it's that's the greatest learning you're going to receive. And so I'm, I've been so grateful for that part of ministry as well. And and I was more talking about with the seminary of suffering, just really deep grief and depression. Um, mm. You know, that 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 four years in the organized church was it had its struggles for sure. Um, but yeah more so just delightful to walk with the seasoned saints and and learn how to learn how to shepherd the more difficult sheep and uh and learn about how church government does work and doesn't work even though i had served as an elder and a deacon and pre previously um yeah the lord is so kind in the way that he calls us and then the way that he equips who he calls and and that's the beauty too of of a good, healthy, structured classes or presbytery is, is you've got others walking with you, uh, ensuring that you're equipped and holding you ac accountable. And I'm so grateful to have had seasoned ministers, active and retired throughout my life that have just been so good to me and, and to have their friendship and their teaching. Um, it's, it's Presbyterianism at its best. When, when it works that way. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Aaron, uh, one of the things that uh, myself and our other listeners are really interested in is kind of your call to ministry. How did you know uh, that and when God was kind of shaping you and calling you into a role in ministry? Yeah, thanks, Willie. Um, for me, I love the church. I've always loved the church, but it was clearly a unique time when the doors just opened sequentially. I did not seek these things out. I mean, when I was presented with a call to eldership first, I, I did have a sense, an inner call to that. And, and as the apostle would say, uh, the sense of the noble call that it is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was, it, it seems fast. I mean, and, and, and the carriage was before the horse at times in, in my process, but it was just walking through doors, um, with godly people giving counsel and, and opening those doors for me. And so it was a situation where I was growing as a teacher and, and it was clear to me and, and my community that I had gifts to teach and, and rightly divide the word. And so we just walked through those doors together. There was never any doubt or hesitation. It was the obligation uh, to preach and, and to serve. And it, I kind of, you know, what else are you going to do when, when you have that sense coming internally and, um, and from the church? So, yeah, I, it's kind of a whirlwind looking back over really the last eight years or so that that has played out. But um, there's just never been any doubt and the Lord's given, given the boldness and confidence to walk through and, and then the chastening when we've, when we've tried to get ahead of him. So. Hmm. Yeah. What about, what about, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what, in, what went into this call to, uh, to plant this church? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I, I've been able to live in this rural community in the mountains of Northwest Washington uh, since 97, 98, really. Uh, that's my home, and it's a it's a secular, post-Christian, West Coast rural environment. It's a ski community, and so I've always traveled to find God's people and to worship with them, and um, I've been known as someone in the community with a, a measure of common grace wisdom to be an entrepreneur and, and be involved in, you know, running the water district and that sort of thing and, and speak into people's lives. And then as I grew in the pastoral mantle, the the community took notice of that as well. And so I have had many opportunities to, to witness and to minister to unbelieving people. And so there were just a number of different doors that, that closed as I was kind of looking for the next call, but sensing that it needed to be in my community, that it needed to be indigenous And the reality that though the Dutch Calvinist stream has been represented in the, in this area for 125 years, they never uh, made any inroads into, into where I live. And so again, it was doors opening and, and, and the right doors closing to where it was just clear. I needed to, I needed to bring the word to my neighbors and I can testify to how God provided in so many ways, you know, using just my entrepreneurship and so forth and my background of frugality and investing and so forth to just clear the way financially for me to just step into ministry full-time, unpaid, and and on faith begin teaching the word. And he provided facilities very inexpensively and people whom I had had gospel conversations with over the last two decades just the invitation came to those people and a few mature brothers and sisters as well. And then, like I say, maybe more of the Calvary Chapel or mega church types too. And so it it just happened very organically and has, has grown. We've seen conversion growth. We're seeing people just um, grasp after the deeper things of the faith, which come from a, mature reformed biblical theology and so i get the privilege of 
Thursday nights and Sunday nights, standing before a, a totally mixed corpus, a, a mixed body of people with children and unbelievers and Arminians and then ref, mature Reformed Christians, and to bring the full counsel of God to bear in a very ordinary way, sing the Psalms, pray the word, preach the word, and the, the response has just been beyond anything I could have hoped for. And so very affirming of the need and uh, the effort and even the praxis, I think. That's awesome. Is that the same group worshiping on Thursday night and Sunday night, or is it two different groups? It's, it's the same where the, uh, it's, it's like uh, 70% overlapping with some people on either end who will have just prioritized one or the other. Sure. That's great. Uh, I love the story uh, just because it's just, like you said, it's just stepping through whatever doors God gives you. And, and I, I love watching how God blesses that even in the midst of all of the, the COVID craziness, right? Like nobody would say this would be a time to plant a church. And yet you're like, well, God's telling me to do something. So let's do it. And, and to watch God bless that is, is awesome. Yeah. And if I can encourage you know, the more legacy and organized churches, this is an opportunity. I, I hear regularly from people how they feel they're being deceived by politicians or by mass media, and then they're being instructed that they can't be in community. At least we still are in Washington state. I, I don't know about the rest of the country. And so then I get to say, well, guess what historic Christianity is? It's the truth in community. And so People are hungering for the two things that the church has an extreme monopoly on. And so, you know, we have a meal together after each service. And it's just remarkable to see it. It's, it's perfect for this time. And I even thought when the coronavirus was early and there was more misunderstanding about it and fear, what a great opportunity for the church to dispatch her elders to do um, smaller gatherings and so forth. And I didn't see a lot of churches seize that opportunity but but we do need to be perceptive and prayerful about how to uniquely channel our energies um in this day and age i i I often see or it seems that the the temperature out there amongst the churches and eagerness to return to more of the pragmatic approaches and i think the lord's given us a pretty neat opportunity to evaluate i remember early on in, in the coronavirus bob godfrey wrote an essay that I thought was very insightful, really questioning if the Lord has brought judgment on the church. And, and the, the main issue that he spotlighted was the culture of worship and sort of um, consumeristic worship. But, hmm. you know, the Lord has been doing mighty things with his virus. <laughs> he makes all things good and he, he, he does so for the good of the elect and for the increase of his kingdom and occasionally for judgment coming first to the household of faith. So, you know, there's, it's a great time to be discerning theologically and then also to be reaching out to people who are confused and wounded and financially ruined and, you know, all the other things that have, that have come in this last year and a half. Yeah. Amen. I I've been, telling churches and my own church that it's important for us to see this as a season of pruning as a season where, you know, we, we shouldn't be too eager to get everything back to normal or to normal or to how things were, but, 
but really be intentional about rebuilding um, with a firm foundation here. Cause maybe some of the things that we cut were things God wanted us to cut. Mm-hmm. I love the hard pruning metaphor. I, I love the vine dresser, man. Um, that's, that's all that motif is all over the scriptures. It's part of my life in terms of having to suffer extreme loss to be chopped down at the knees. Um, and so totally agree in God's providence in this season. Uh, I think that's a, that's a healthy motif to apply to the organized church, the visible church. Amen. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things we like to know too. So I know, so you've been, uh, you've kind of grown up in the CRC. Um, you've been, uh, ordained through article 23, which is commission pastor. And you've been involved in that, or have you been involved in other kind of denominational ministry? Um, you know, I've been to synod twice, once in 2017, uh, not as a delegate, but as a protestant of, uh, an act of classes Pacific Northwest in ordaining, um, uh, a candidate who many of us were aggrieved by um, the process. Uh, this was a situation in 2016 where a, where a candidate on the floor of, of Class Pacific Northwest in his examination denied the existence of hell, um, mm. penal substitutionary atonement, and the existence of wrath, even in Isaiah 53. So a number of churches protested that ordination and and the classes did not take it up and so we took that as an appeal to synod in 2017 so that was my first experience of being at synod and sadly um that synod did not take up that matter either and so uh that man remains in ordained ministry and has is kind of a a contentious emblem for leftward uh, trending in the denomination. And then I went as a delegate in 2019 out of class of Pacific Northwest when we had brought the overture to begin the work of classes North Cascades to come out of Pacific Northwest. So I went to Synod in 2019 to, to try to help shepherd that overture. And um, God was merciful to us, I think, in allowing us to to establish a new classes, which is um, the churches, I don't know, there's seven or eight of us in North Whatcom County, Washington, uh, the far Northwest part of the, the state. So just really synod and classes activities um, loosely around the World Relief Committee and then uh, World Renew and like I say, um, cadet ministries and, and so forth. So, you know, a great familiarity with the the history of the different agencies and efforts of the denomination, but not a ton of, of direct involvement with, with any. Hmm. Yeah. Aaron, you had mentioned that 2019 synod that we were both at and we actually, that's how we met. We were in the same study committee and uh, I'm wondering kind of what your thoughts were about your experience there. I mean, that was your first time as an elder delegate. Um, how did you think that that, interaction went what were some things that kind of energized you and excited you as well as uh, brought you some concerns yeah i mean the exciting thing was was some of the fellowship um you know meeting you willie and and i think beginning probably a lifelong friendship out of that is, is delightful 
Um, but it was it was a struggle for me uh, experientially and pastorally. I uh, a company I was traveling with and rooming with um, one of my deacons, and he was a, a first time delegate, and he was a brother who um, I had the great privilege of of discipling him as he was becoming aware of Reformed theology, and he came out of the Assemblies of God and brought his family into our church, and we you know applied covenant baptism to their five through 13 year old children and he grew and was affirmed by the body as an officer and so forth and so he's he's a deacon delegate and that was hard for both of us because we were seeing discussions on you know global warming or gender neutral pronouns and um, a number of other sad issues that seem to neglect the scriptures and, and the confessions um, you know, we heard in committee meetings, uh, I remember a, a lady deacon from Canada, we were talking about human sexuality, and she was asserting that her, she tells her grandkids to live with their boyfriends and girlfriends before they get married and to make sure they're compatible. And then we were sitting in the cafeteria and a, and a deacon from Western Canada was talking about, uh, you know, Jesus didn't really do the miracles as they're recorded in the scriptures. He, he had a uh, he had bread up his sleeves, you know, the garments that they wore were, were very bulky and, and that's where the bread came, you know, so sadly there were, there was just a lot of that every day. You're, you're mingling with, with some like-minded brothers and you're finding fellowship and so forth. And then you're being inundated with all of the bizarre uh, denials, frankly, of, of truths we confess. So that was a, genuinely painful week for me walking with this brother who then eventually he, he took his family um into the pca and he's he's doing well he's being groomed for lifelong eldership there but you know again we lost another another solid guy and it was it was due to the just wanderings of of many in in the denomination and and, and chasing after these frankly bizarre notions that, that just don't comport with, with the things that we've long held. So yeah, that, maybe that's a long-winded answer, Willie, about that synod, but it was eye-opening a bit more so to my colleague, but just, just, just painful because of all that. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. was, I, I wrote, I wrote a response to that for the Aquila report, which is a, a, a news aggregator of conservative reform and Presbyterian uh, news and 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 outlined that and and so then that too was probably helpful because it helped me connect with other like-minded guys in the denomination and and maybe have a a concise report of you know what what this what our synod what our activities actually look like through a conservative confessionally reformed lens yeah i mean i've heard other people other conservatives who have um, told me after being a delegate at Synod, it took them a couple of weeks to recover from it because they came home just feeling um, beat down and, and discouraged by some of the conversations that happened. It was a sober week with a long hangover. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I know people who would agree with that. And uh, I think one of the things that you mentioned, though, is something I, I want to make sure that um, everyone hears as well, because I think one of one of the struggles in the CRC over the years has been 
um, a refusal to take a stand on certain issues because they're afraid of dividing the church, right? So we, we don't want to lose people. We're already shrinking our denomination. You know, the, the ship is sinking. We don't want to take a stand because we're afraid we're going to lose someone. And yet you described your deacon. They basically left because they saw all of this craziness and nobody taking a stand on anything. And I think that's been what has been happening in the CRC and will continue to happen if we don't ever take a stand on something that it's just, we just slowly hemorrhage out um, a lot of good, solid people. Yeah, agreed. And so, you know, here we were, we're at a so-called Presbyterian assembly, right? We're at the highest court of the church. We are, whether people know it or not, we ascribe to a hybrid Presbyterian government where the the, there is some congregational polity at the local level, but there are Presbyterian courts. And what we witnessed is a great deal of people who, who do not fit the description of presbyter, of, of elder. And so my great passion in the local church, and I think my hope for the broader church and denominations and federations, is that we would hold each other accountable to live into the call to shepherd, to, to be elders, to be under shepherds, under the great shepherd, uh, according to the descriptions and the outlines and the prescriptions that he has given to us. And so what we see in these larger assemblies and then in, frankly, so much of the unordained uh, ministries of the denomination is a deviation from oversight and, and from the, the sort of federal principles that the Bible gives the church. And so, of course, we can trace that back in a, in a, to a huge degree to the mid-90s and, and to the, um, the compromise wherein we were no longer going to, to hold, as, as the historic church always had, um, a federal headship that, that called for a male leadership and oversight. And so there's just been great erosion of the office of elder and and who ought to be doing what and what it looks like ever since we're we're kind of just in a very confused posture all the time and uh, that's that to me is the grievous thing and, and I know a lot of people don't like to rehash the pain of the 1990s because it was painful and there were you know families who anathematized each other and haven't had Thanksgiving dinner since, and so forth. And obviously, a new federation of churches was birthed. And then many who didn't like the squabbling, uh, you know, fled to the megachurch. And so, to me, it's a breakdown of understanding what Presbyterianism is. And, and my hope is we will live into it. You know, I have a saying that um, Presbyterianism is the answer. And then somebody says, well, what's the question? It doesn't matter. Because when God's people will follow his prescriptions, um, things go quite a bit better. Otherwise, we're, we're just, frankly, um, we're in a form of rebellion. And it may not seem that way through the cultural lens. And it's hard to describe to people in, you know, this, this century what biblical authority is. But those are very real things that, that the Lord doesn't take for granted. And he takes very seriously. And so uh, as I visit with you guys, it's, you know, the joy is that that's the kind of fellowship we're enjoying. And, and 
um, you know, you and Jason and I to, to be able to share just how that process came for the church to recognize us and us to feel inwardly called to be presbyters as we both walk with Willie in discipling him in that direction. Like, that's, that's glorious stuff. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of our interview with Aaron DeBoer. But until then, don't forget this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in and try to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season, and keep fighting the good fight in this messy Reformation. Reformation.